Happy New Year, Alliance community. After the roller coaster of emotions that was 2020, we here at the Alliance Center were so ready to start 2021 off on a positive note. When President Biden announced his plans to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement on his first day in office, we knew it would be the perfect excuse to celebrate. On January 21st, we gathered our community for our Back to Paris event. This was a virtual celebration in honor of the momentous occasion, which included the conversation in this episode of the Climate Bridges podcast. I'm Shay Halavity, and I'm thrilled to bring you this episode, which unpacks what rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement means here in Colorado and the intersectionality of the sustainability movement. This conversation features Marcel McClinton, a youth activist who ran for Houston City Council at the age of 17 and now serves as a Civic Futures Liaison for Peace Jam here in Colorado, and Sonrisa Lucero, sustainability strategist for the city and county of Denver, Alliance Center board member, and lifelong activist and organizer. These two leaders spoke during the Back to Paris event, inspiring the attendees to take action and push even beyond the Paris Agreement, building the positive momentum in the days immediately following the historic inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. Enjoy their conversation. My name is Marcel McClinton. I'm originally from Houston, Texas, where I did run for Houston City Council in my senior year of high school. Uh, took a gap year. Um, I had been active in the gun violence uh, prevention movement for a couple years. Um, I had been interested uh, interested in, in civics. I had served on our mayor's gun violence task force, where we researched the issue of gun violence uh, and what policies we can act locally uh, and push you know, at the state and federal level. Um, and then I was inspired to run because there was a guy uh, who was a GOP bail bondsman um, and climate change denier uh, who, who currently served in that role. We made a statement to the city. Uh, we increased uh, voter turnout. Uh, we pushed him into a runoff for the first time in his career. Um, when people thought that we couldn't raise any money as this outsider candidate, um, we came in second right behind him and he'd been in office for six years. And so what, what I'm really excited about uh, in my work is, is engaging youth uh, that I do now through, through Peace Jam uh, as their civic engagement liaison. Uh, I'm excited to be here today and talk about our rejoining of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, I'm excited to talk to you, Sinrisa. Thanks, Marcel. It's so like, exciting and I'm honored to share this virtual stage with you. My name is Sonrisa Lucero. I'm with the City and County of Denver's Office of Climate Action, Sustainability and Resiliency. And let's see, I really got interested in sustainability when I was in sixth grade and uh, environmental educators came to our class and brought a jar with something that looked kind of foggy but you couldn't see anything in there. And I was just like intrigued. Later, they explained that it was the brown cloud that we were experiencing quite a bit in Denver in the 80s. And ever since then, I've been hooked on environmental activism and protectionism, uh, especially uh, growing up here in Colorado with um, our mountains as our backyard and grandparents that would take me camping and fishing. And so I, I really got into the global warming side of things. When I was in college, um, the Kyoto Protocol was happening right about that time. 
And I designed my own degree actually to address climate change. And it was in the School of Engineering at Stanford. It mixed policy and economics and energy resources together. After college, I actually went into engineering, trying to make buildings more energy efficient, and then uh, transitioned into sustainability consulting for buildings, making them uh, more sustainable overall. Before I finally got satisfied that policy itch that I had and move over to the city and county of Denver and work in the mayor's office on local sustainability policy. Something I, I learned about you that I thought was incredibly inspiring is that you were not just the survivor of, but also the protector during a shooting that was happening outside of your parish. And you were protecting preschoolers that you were teaching at Sunday school. And that's what really inspired your passion for working on, on preventing gun violence. Tell me how that's uh, translating maybe into climate and environmental movement. What kind of urgency are you feeling now? And how should youth be taking a part of our next step of, of climate action? So, so yes, uh, 2016, uh, I was 14 years old. A gunman with an AR-15 went on a rampage for an hour. And then I sat in the front lobby with like eight other people. Um, we watched him pace our parking lot. Um, and we're listening to this police scanner. I heard that uh, my friend who lives in the neighborhood across the street was actually shot through her car door. Uh, and we had, to, we had to lock the building down. And it, we had never, you know, talked about what we would do, you know, on a Sunday morning if we were uh, worshiping and someone brought a gun into the building. I mean, just that year and the year after that, we had the Pulse nightclub shooting. There was a shooting in San Bernardino, California. Uh, one at like a YouTube building, and then there was a Parkland school shooting, and so many in between um, that, that don't make the news. I felt drawn to to action and started working with local organizations, statewide and national organizations, lobbying for, for gun reform in Texas, uh, which is an interesting place to lobby for gun reform. Uh, what I realized was all of these issues that, that I'm passionate about are so interconnected that we had to really present this as a package to Texas lawmakers, because what, what we found was if I lobby a, a Republican uh, state official and I'm just trying to, to poke their emotional strings, that's not going to work. If I just talk about how many people are being shot and killed in Texas every year by guns that are not stored safely, that's not going to work. But if I talk about the impact that, that, that gun violence has on our hospital system and where the state comes in and has to then fund billions of dollars to the hospitals for folks who were shot and don't have health care because we're the highest uninsured rate in the country, then they listen because they want to save the state money. But I also know we can't be safe from gun violence and then ignore that we may not have a planet to live on. So it's kind of hard, I think, as a young activist to prioritize. Uh, well, do I want a planet in 10 years or do I want to not be shot when I go to the movie theater? That we have to juggle those ideas. That sucks. But I'm of the belief that I can walk and chew gum at the same time and I can research and be passionate about a lot of issues all at once uh, because I don't have a choice but to do that. I, I'm interested in learning more about your background and professional work. Uh, I, I want to hear about your first organizing experience that you remember um, and what drew you to specifically start bridging the gap between Latinx communities and the climate movement. Yeah. It's kind of funny when to be asked like my first organizing experience because I I grew up in a family of activists. I mean, my parents were always pushing for equality, social justice, 
stories of them like taking over buildings at their university. I was always like aspiring to take over a building in college because I was like, I haven't lived up to their <laughs> standard until I've done that. So my youngest movements were probably first when I was in high school. I was organizing them. I organized us to recycle at our at our big event. And I would collect all of the recycling in the back of my grandfather's like 1969 Chevy. And I would drive it over to Canland, for those of you that are from Denver, and sell it. Then I would donate the money back to our student council. The one that I probably, where I really cut my teeth on organizing uh, was when I was in college. And um, I was actually on the student body. The activists on campus at that time were working for a living wage for the janitors at the hospital that was affiliated with Stanford. And so while I agreed with them, it was trying to figure out how do I support from my position in student government. And and it was really kind of this like first lesson on working from the inside versus working from the outside. And a lot of that strategy is something that I bring with me now, where it's like, I totally am in alignment and agreement on our values and our ethics. And how do I bring that to transform this system that is uh, designed to move slowly, you know, to prioritize these other interests. And um, I think that's that was like a, a really valuable balance. Um, to the second half of your question, it's only been in uh, the last couple of years that I've really been advocating for equity, you know, in a, in a very strong, uh, direct, passionate way. At first, it was, uh, especially in my engineering world, um, I was in very much a white male world. And a lot of it was was seeming taboo. And to some extent, I wanted to be seen for my skills and my abilities as an engineer and not for my race. And I was trying to excel as an engineer. Um, a lot of my social activism work or my equity work would always be more on my, my own personal time. But it has become so blurringly clear that we can't separate these issues anymore. And we have to be able to show up as our whole selves. The demands of equity, the demands of climate justice, it's really important that I bring my voice and those opinions and am finally my whole self in my work. Really been trying to do that, though that is a challenge too, because uh, oftentimes a lot of the equity work falls on the people of color within an organization and it, it is an emotional burden. And there's like, and so I've been cautious how much I take on. You know, something that was really interesting that you brought up that just in your last comment, I am impressed, like astounded, amazed, worried about young people today because there are so many very serious issues that are a lot for adults even. So I wonder like, how are you, and especially having survived a, a shooting, how are people in your age group maintaining your mental health, your emotional health, your well-being? And I also have to say that I am just amazed by all of you that are pushing all the rest of us to be better, even in the face of all of this. I, I'm smiling because uh, I feel like I get that question a lot and then never end up knowing how to answer it. After yesterday, I slept better than I have slept in four years last night. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night. I woke up feeling refreshed. Uh, like, you know, it was just great. And I'm sure that was a lot of people also. Um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, self-care in the movement improving over this next four years. Because if anything, this has been a cultural reset. You know, cl climate change will not be solved in a Biden administration, but we can get closer to getting something productive done. And that that is what gives me hope. I, I, I used to be really anti uh, 
therapy. I, I didn't want to pay someone to listen to my problems. Um, and I suffer from migraines uh, that, that happened after the shooting in 2016. I was driving and my vision went completely white. I had a migraine, um, but I couldn't see anything. And uh, I was able to pull over and then called a doctor. Um, I went in to see them. Everything checked out. My eyes were normal, 20-20 vision. And then she just asked if I do anything that causes me great stress. And I was like, well, everything that I do causes me a lot of stress. I don't do anything that, that doesn't cause me stress. And that was like a wake-up call to me that I have to take care of myself. I have to eat three meals a day. I have to drink 10 glasses of water every day. I have to sleep. And then schedule that into my calendar. I have to schedule time for me to do nothing um, in my day. So I encourage everyone else to do the same thing. I was genuinely moved by your TED Talk where you spoke about the need to integrate our work with the communities that have historically suffered the effects of environmental injustice and will carry those larger burdens um, as climate change inevitably targets their home. My follow-up is, uh, as you know, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, which is a city known as the energy capital of the, of the world. And my old neighborhood was the energy corridor, which is full of oil and gas companies. We're a place that often focuses on accessibility to jobs. We're projected to have a majority Latino population by just next year. And I'm curious, how do you get people from places like my neighborhood to recognize that those jobs are currently and will be available in energy industries, absent of oil and pollutant gases? How do we get them on board with us to realize that even the Paris Agreement is not enough? Yeah, thanks. Uh, not an easy question at all, but... <laughs> um, I think the first thing that we're we're here to celebrate, right, because of of hope, and I think that's that's a uh, one really great mental health thing for myself too is like having something to build toward and and to look forward to. When we left the Paris Climate Accord, it actually had almost the opposite effect than what Trump and and the far right would have thought. Instead of shutting down renewable energy or energy efficiency, it actually like spurred it quite a bit local governments and businesses and even individuals adopt this issue as their own and ingrate it within their own system. In a way, it was almost like a positive thing for us on the U.S. side because it, it got us moving in that the federal government really can't do, right? And I feel like that has been a major theme that I've been hearing in the last just week, how it's so hackneyed now, right? But it's like, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think so much of that, we can't wait anymore for these larger, bigger pieces to move. We have to control the pieces that we can. In that sense, I'm super excited that that happened and that it's probably going to continue to happen and needs to continue to happen. But what does this mean for in Colorado, at least, um, which is also an energy producing state? We used to think about we think about this with city government we sit around and be like, OK, what are the levers that we actually have? We have tax dollars that we can spend. We have laws that we can make for the things that we actually govern. We can use our bully pulpit, you know, as a city um, to, to communicate things out. And we can use our power of convener. You know, the things that, that I'm looking forward to from kind of a Biden administration, one that centralized organization on things that we can't necessarily do as individuals. So it's going to be kind of that. So like, how do we go back into regulating power plants and industries on that level? 
the cafe standards and bring those back, pushing for the rebates again for energy efficiency and electrification of transportation. There's a whole push for public transportation now, which I think is going to be really exciting, um, where the feds can come in and help any city over 100,000 people on public transportation side. There's a big effort on carbon sequestration and innovation and research on that. And then just innovation R&D for renewable energies and storage and so on. So all of those things give me hope. You start to finally get into the areas beyond just the energy efficiency jobs, and you can start getting into the high-tech positions of energy storage, of carbon sequestration, um, integrating these big systems. And those are the jobs that potentially can compete with the high-paying jobs of oil and gas, right? And the problem is that so much of the oil and gas jobs are the lifeblood for rural areas. The The real question that we're going to have to answer is how can we get some of that high-paying stuff back into the to the rural areas as well or being able to create a, a funding stream for it but also you have the royalties that go back to those areas right it's like how do you supplant you know, that kind of funding for local governments and so on oil and gas areas have opportunities for methane capture i think ag areas have areas for carbon sequestration and what you hear on biden's pay is just jobs 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 but i think the main fears that people have is going to cost too much and it's going to cost people jobs right? If we can allay those fears and start to prove that, we'll get there. My last maybe question for you, you know, you as one young person get to speak on behalf of all young people. What do, what do you want you and your peers at least to be able to do, you know? Yeah, um, we can go back two or, or four years ago. There was this collective wake-up call really all over the world. I mean, March for Our Lives and the climate strike, th- these were global actions. Um, I think that we've, we've bred a generation of organizers which excites me because I think that when organizers are in positions of power, are the best people to to run companies, to run our government, to represent people. And I, I really hope that young people are able to, you know, aside from pushing policy, getting laws passed, mobilizing more youth and to, and, and to bring them into the electoral process. I, I hope that we as as a generation are able to kind of rebirth the fight. But I think that we really have a duty to continue to inspire people who may have been in this fight for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Um, We have to help people realize that we're not done fighting. Um, We're not going to allow you to give up. We want to give this new energy and this new wave across our communities and across the world. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Climate Bridges podcast. Big thanks to Sunrisa and Marcel for participating in the conversation and for sharing their stories. This episode was produced by the Alliance Center and edited by Progress Now Colorado. Do you want to build your sustainability network and grow your connections throughout Colorado? Become an Alliance member today. Whether you're a nonprofit, business, individual, or student, The Alliance membership has the perfect option to meet your needs. Learn more today at thealliancecenter.org slash become a member.